Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Chris Cole, a Canadian sound artist presently based in Berlin. And as described on Chris's website, chriscole.com, she takes a conceptual approach, generating subtle and imperfect sounds through haptic gestures and seemingly mundane materials to create texturally nuanced works that continuously retune the ear. This is in full effect on Chris's recent release for Boomcat's documenting sound series called Other Meetings. My favourite thing about that release is it has a sense of scale dictated by intensity and depth of attention rather than things like the size of the object or instrument or the proximity of the sound. So you have, as she describes, mundane materials looming incredibly large and loud. You also have sounds like birdsong from geographically remote places compared to Chris's present residence in Berlin. Again, loud and upfront, a bit like with memory and daydreaming, when you have a very vivid memory and it overlays upon your present circumstances and feels as close and as palpable as anything that might exist in your material reality. There's also a new Aura Clementi record Laura Clementi being her duo with James Rushford that came out on Black Truffle just recently. It's an absolute feast full of surprises, beautiful details. I've been loving diving into that release. So I'll include links to these in the show notes. Like I say, go over to chriscole.com for more information on Chris's work. And I'll bung all of the links over at Attention Magazine uk forward slash crucial listening thank you very much for listening rating reviewing and saying lovely things about the podcast i really hope you enjoy this episode too chris was such a great pleasure to speak to i love the way that she talks about listening and these three records were oh, such a delight for headphones all of them i really recommend you check them out anyway this is Chris Cole on Crucial Listening. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's good to have you on here. So you've brought three important records to talk about. Before we start talking about those, I want to ask about a few of your recent projects, one of sure. which being Other Meetings, which is your contribution to Boomcat's documenting sound series. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand from reading about this record that you turned your kitchen table into the site of your makeshift studio for this one. <laughs> I was, did. There, was there a reason for picking the kitchen table? 
Well, um, the, the main reason is that myself and my partner were living in a one-room apartment for the entire first year of the COVID <laughs> epidemic. Oh pandemic. So I really didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. It, we were, we were luck- lucky that we had one small kitchen with a functional table that I could sort of occupy during the daytime to work at. So gotcha. that became my studio. And what were the first elements of this record to start to come together? Um, well, I think as I mentioned in my notes uh, with the, the release, I'm a very slow worker. <laughs> I, sort uh-huh. of, I sort of like to accumulate things and then slowly let them kind of grow and, and build. And, and with this piece, I had, um, I had created a piece for Amplify, the series that John Abbey from Erstwhile had done at the beginning of the pandemic lockdown, mm-hmm. um, where he had invited a lot of, I mean, I think there were hundreds of artists in the end that contributed um, to do short pieces from their their positions in the world and I so I had I had made a piece that was based on the sound of a small Turkish coffee pot rocking on my stovetop that I always enjoyed every morning when I'd be heating up my milk and making my coffee and so I started recording it and that sort of evolved into this piece that I made for Amplify which in turn became one element in the broader uh, kind of pieces that that became my my boom cat release so i've always really been attuned to my domestic environment sonically so that's always often a trigger i'll just hear a door creak or i'll hear a certain sound my fridge makes and that'll sort of trigger an idea for something which was sort of the inception i think of of some of the pieces on that release but also out of necessity because I was literally in quite a hard lockdown at the time. Right. We couldn't. Right. I couldn't go to record in another studio. I couldn't. I didn't have access to additional instruments and things like this. So I just had to work with what I had, which led to really digging into my archive of field recordings and things that I had been sort of accumulating over the last several years, which became the backbone of the first side of the piece, which is recordings that I did in um, in a few different cities in different parts of the world over the last few years. So that was kind of an interesting, it was sort of like this excavation of my traveling history and sort of getting a chance to travel back to these places through the recordings, which yeah. was kind, kind of nice. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I think um, it rings true to a lot of people's experiences of travel whereby... Uh, you end up having a lot of conversations over dinner about holidays past in the absence you know so um yeah uh i mean one of the sounds that really strikes me on this release is the sound of birdsong because Mm. i guess during the past year birdsong is been an interesting presence in the sense that it's one of those sounds of the outside that quite dependably infiltrates the inside Um, absolutely you know so but but then i i if i'm correct in reading the the notes the bird song that you've implemented on this release or included in this release is actually from elsewhere so that's in a way like a nice kind of jar there could you tell me about the inclusion of bird song on this one yeah i mean it's a funny thing because it's sort of I've seen these sort of snarky comments online about like enough birdsong and ambient music and, you know, as though it's like just become this trope when I don't know how anyone could get sick of hearing birds singing personally. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> but, 
But yeah, I think the fact that we were all sort of stuck in home, at home, the the outdoor the outdoor world was much more quiet. I mean, the urban sounds were more quiet, so we were mm. able to actually witness the sort of the the interactions of birds so much more. And because I was when I was looking into my my archive, I had a lot of recordings from places like Thailand and Australia, where the bird songs are. I mean, it's always fascinating to me because I've traveled a lot in the last decade to hear the very different songs and the language of, of birds in different places that you mm. you don't, you know, I didn't grow up with. It's not part of my, you know, familiar uh, childhood-like experience, but then it's become familiar to me because of living in these other places. Yeah. So that was kind of a nice, I mean, also just for me, just harmonically and sonically there it's sort of it never ceases to be fascinating to me the patterns and the tones that birds generate so it's sort of like a it's like an incredible instrument <laughs> to, yeah. to work with i think if you become attuned to bird song as well you get very familiar as to what constitutes your home birdscape right oh, so yeah. while i don't really know the birds that occupied Berlin or the places that you've recorded, I imagine having those particular birds in amongst the recording of domestic life is is quite, you know, if I suddenly heard the birds of the Amazon outside my window, I think I'd freak out a bit, you know, it's kind of <laughs> it's a very rooting experience to hear certain birds. Oh yeah yeah, <laughs> it's also wild when sometimes you hear the same birds you hear a familiar bird sound in a, in a totally unfamiliar yes. place yeah. So that's, I mean, it's like one of those things where you're, you know, you're in, an, in a place that you feel very alien, but then you smell something or you eat something that, that brings you kind of home, home-like comfort. And I found, I've had that with birdsong, where I'm like, wow, I, this, is, this is a sound I totally relate to this place. <laughs> and now I'm hearing it here, which is kind of, it feels sort of, I don't know, it is comforting, but it's sort of just this miraculous connection to... I mean, yeah. birds are migratory too, so obviously they're moving around. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. One of the other notes I saw in reference to this record, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was to do with the fact that being in lockdown had brought you to a state of, I think surreal calm may have been the phrase. Um, <laughs> it's interesting, Hilla, reading that and then listening to the release because I find myself thinking about whether or not calm is the sort of predominant state that I'm hearing. And there's certain (laughs) moments at which it does feel present, but certain moments feel very fidgety, I guess. Yeah, oh yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, does calm exist within the context of this record to you or, or, or not? You know, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of how I would have phrased that in the, in the notes, but I mean, there, I think there is, this sort of stillness that I was sort of forced that was forced upon me mm, <laughs> because right, of yeah. I mean simply as a as a very transient person just having to be in one place for I, well now going on a year and a half is is quite strange and and mm. then having to be in this one space with very little movement or activity in a way it's sort of like it forced me to be more grounded and at first it was quite calming because of the fact that I'm so used to this kind of endless momentum of movement and so uh-huh. I think that was in a way calming which may have impacted some of the music but I think 
uh, actually I'm thinking of the first track on the second side which is in a way quite agitating actually I don't know if it's yes. the first or second the one that, <laughs> yeah which is actually ironically made from me close miking and affecting dry dying flowers so <laughs> oh wow yeah okay. I know it, it has this very electronic and sort of wild sound to it but it, it was really just the way that I was processing the signal and um but I found as I was doing it like it, it when I listen to it I think oh this is an agitating track but it's kind of also <laughs> it really does express a certain kind of feeling like this cooped up feeling of like you know this frenetic energy that you don't know what to do with and the sort of frustration so yeah in a way the the other yeah, pieces kind of embody various st- states of mind <laughs> of <laughs> yeah. being in that in that zone yeah i enjoyed reading actually about how you came to the title of your last record i think in an interview um you mentioned coming to the title of beside myself and um mm gradually reckoning with that as a really appropriate title yeah. um, how did you come to the title of other meetings you know it just sort of come it just sort of came to me i sort of i think i always have a list of of phrases that when i get a lot of my ideas from just having conversations and a phrase will come to mind especially idioms and and strange ways that within english we we phrase things i become mm-hmm. really aware of these funny the playfulness of the way we pull words together to, <laughs> and what the, the actual meanings of these things are, but they've taken on new meanings. And um, though with this one, I think I was just feeling like I had pulled together all of these disparate things and found a way for them to all kind of coexist and, and meet each other. I said, so I kept having this feeling mm-hmm. of like, well, how, how did this thing that was recorded in my kitchen meet with this recording in a temple in Thailand, meet with this recording from fireworks in Winnipeg and all these different events. So I just kept thinking of meetings and that's sort of how how the the title came together for this one. Awesome. What I like about it actually is this being thrust together with the same people and particularly Mm. at times where social life is totally locked down. Yeah. The idea of other meetings basically confronting different people and, and experiences outside of that yeah, ruthlessly yeah. ritualized circumstance becomes really fantastical. Um, That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to ask about here is you mentioned that you've got a new Aura Clementi release coming up on Black Truffle. So yes. what can you tell me about that? Oh, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> um, it's it's long overdue. So the project Aura Clementi with with my very dear friend James Rushford, mm-hmm. we we um, our first record came out, I think, seven years ago now. My gosh, is it that long ago? Wow. Th- so it's been quite a while. We did have a couple of digital. Uh, digital-only things that came out in the year or two after the original record. But because we never live in the same place, for a long time James was living in California, I was living between Australia and Canada. Now he's back in Australia, I'm in Berlin. And so we, we really only meet for if we're playing together or if we're visiting, we're able to visit. And um, 
so finally we said okay this has just been long enough we keep getting together and doing one gig or two gigs and then we don't see each other again for six months let's do this so we actually planned to meet and record in in melbourne uh this would have been not this past winter but the winter before and we made this behemoth <laughs> of a record <laughs> it's like seven years worth of <laughs> oh <material>. wow yeah <laughs> Kind of, kind of. It's sort of, yeah. Just sort of manifests this. It's a, it's a double LP. It's, it's a very, very sort of massive adventure of a record um, that came from ideas we've been talking about for years, but also uh, it grew out of. We had a residency at this wonderful studio, uh, Mess, which is um, Melbourne Electric. Oh my gosh, what are they called? Oh, I should really know this. I should be able to plug their wonderful studio. But it's it's basically an archive of, of synths and analog equipment and even contemporary digital equipment and basically one of the best in the world that they've accumulated there. And we had a two-week residency that sort of began the process of this record. So it's it's a very strange record based on ideas around utopia and... Mm kind of pulls together a lot of things we're interested in which is communication and discourse that we have together which is sort of unique to us um, this sort of strange idea of conversations that are abstracted and fragmented that James and I have been sort of working on for the last seven or so years um, mm. mixed with uh, exploring synths and technology rec- bizarre recording techniques medieval instruments <laughs> there's wow. a brass there's a brass section <laughs> oh my word it's it's pretty adventurous and, and ambitious but i think we're both really excited about how it turned out so very happy to finally have it out in the world amazing so i'll include <laughs> links to other meetings and if there is a link to that oral clementi release by the time this goes live we'll include that as well so let's talk about your important records, Chris. So one question I like to ask is about how you came to the decision of what important means to you. Was there a way that you understood that word to come to this list of records? <laughs> well, I have to say, um, this was almost torturous for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds terrible because I, I really love talking about records, but it was it was really hard for me because I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a record collector myself and I'm a very sort of obsessive music f- fanatic, mm-hmm. and I've also been separated from my record collection for two years now. It's been in storage in Canada, oh. and um, so it's it, it just brought up a lot of questions of what is. Yeah, what is important? What and what angle do I come at it? Um, which I probably thought far too much about. Really, <laughs> um, I had a, a list that I just kept going through, adding and de- deleting, and anyways. But in the end, the ones that I selected really had a very close connection to my practice. That was hmm. sort of what led me to the three that I, I sort of settled on and represented different different sort of angles yeah, to, to things that definitely were formative for me. Okay, great. So let's go for one of the records. I'll let you pick whichever one 
you want to go with first? What should we, what should we go for? Um, let's start with Anea. Anea Lockwood's Glass World. Fabulous. So, why is this one important to you? Well, this one is important to me uh, for various reasons, and, and its importance has even grown in recent years. Um, but I came across uh, this wonderful record uh, when I was working in a store in Vancouver, and I knew of Anea from uh, compilations and, and, and pieces that I had read about and knew about of her work. But when I found this record, it's, it's listed as Anna Lockwood, the glass world of Anna Lockwood. So I had a moment of, who's this Anna person? <laughs> and, and I just, I basically convinced my boss to let me buy it because he knew it was a rare record, but I convinced him it was, nobody was interested in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that it wasn't worth, yeah, putting on his, you know, special sales. And I don't know <laughs> how I convinced done. him. I, it rarely happened, but this one I was successful. And so I, I managed to bring it home that day and... The idea of, so this is a series of concerts that Anea did in, in the late 60s and the early 70s where she simply did these massive concerts of recorded glass. So each piece would be a study of a particular form of glass, a particular way of making the glass, instruments that she built out of glass. But they're, they're not these, like, it's not like a complex orchestra. What really resonated with me was the way that she was focusing on a simple sound or the simple possibilities of sound from one object made of glass. And at the time, I was sort of embarking on my my solo work because I had been working in more like improvisational uh, groups and and combinations for for quite a few years, but I finally was sort of starting to perform live just by myself. And that was a big part of what I was doing, was just, I'm going to do a performance with just a contact mic or two contact mics and a a bowl of of water or a a rolling object or an amplified piece of metal or something. And I would just do these very, very minimal setups. And so when I found her work, I just thought, wow, where did this woman come from? This is like Mm -hmm. these beautifully recorded, incredibly nuanced, rich sounds and she was occupying like a giant theater with a captive audience to just right. listen to resonating glass you know and 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 she was young she would have been in her she was in her mid to early 20s and this is like in the late 60s and i i was just immediately felt this kinship and was really really it was like those one of those moments where you feel like you've sort of found something found someone who understands where there's an understanding that you don't necessarily mm. come across that often and um, many years later I was able to invite her to Canada to play at a festival I was running in Winnipeg and meet with her and spend time with her and now she's a friend and someone that I work with and it's just incredibly I just feel like it's probably one of one of the most important connections that I've had in my life so to me this record is really super important. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. When you think back to experiences listening to this record, mm. what kind of... I can't remember if you said how long ago it was that you first picked it up. It would have been, it would have been about 20 years ago now. Mm. Yeah. So 
what kind of memories come to mind when you think back to listening to this this record like where are you you know what are you doing <laughs> I think well like I say I was I would have been at a really important part of feeling excited but uncertain about things I was doing in my own work mainly mm. because I it was in a way it felt quite radical what I was doing and I felt a little alien right. <laughs> doing yeah. it, even though there were lots of other artists in the world who's, who were working kind of in a similar mode, it wasn't necessarily happening in my immediate community. And um, yeah, so when I sat down and listened to it, it's almost like chills. It's just this feeling of, mm. and this happens to me a lot, I have to say, um, that through my life, I, there's so many records where I'll be sitting and listening and literally almost feel overwhelmed. Like I want to, I don't know what to do with myself because I'm so excited (laughs) (laughs) what the music that they're making or the, the ideas they're exploring, or I'm, I'm totally perplexed by what they're doing. And it just makes me so excited, you know? Yeah. So that, yeah, that sort of, it was very much that, but there's also this incredible calmness, like this, like the, 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 the recordings, the pieces that she did, are so so refined in their simplicity. You know, they're not they're not perfect. There's a rawness to them, but mm. they're they really just they just exist. So you're you're really focused on just this sound, and it just exists, and then it stops. You know, and it's it's almost very meditative to listen to the record. Yeah, I was going to ask, in fact, what it is because there are certain other artists that deal with these interactions with specific objects like this and you know yeah. present them but i mean you sounds like you've kind of answered it there or maybe you can <laughs> see if there's any more but what is it about anea's approach to mm. doing that which makes it protrude for you in terms of your own listening you know what it it's hard to explain but there's there's this aspect of physicality to anea's work mm. um that sort of transcends like she's a very deep listener she's very tuned in to the kind of minuscule complexities of sound but at the same time she's uh there's there's something there's like a there's like a physical momentum to it that is really integral to a lot of her works and with this one you feel it in this tangible way because you're literally feeling an object vibrating or rubbing or smashing or these things Mm. that that have a real palpable feeling like sense of physicality to them and the interesting thing that I found is that because I began listening to her work this type of thing or her electroacoustic works and then moved slowly into her pieces for more traditional instruments Mm-hmm. and or even her river works and stuff and I realize they all have this very physical like you feel them in your body you listen to them and they're not just you know tickling your ears and 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 sort of you know giving you that sort of sensitivity but they're also there's a sort of depth to them that's really integral to a lot of her work mm. yeah and I've asked her about that, and she completely, as soon as I said it, she started laughing. She said, you got it. That's exactly <laughs> that's it. Like, it's so, I was, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask whether or not, having since discovered this record, 
forged a relationship with Anaya, mm. how that's affected your relationship with the glass world. Hmm. That's, it's almost, it, you know, in a way, this album, because kind of of its austerity and the sort of, it is what it is, I, don't, I think it's sort of, every time I come to it, I have the same feeling. It hasn't, huh. uh, it hasn't changed. I think it, I think some of our other works it has. I, I, my my feelings have changed or grown, or I've heard things that I didn't necessarily notice at the beginning. But with this one, it sort of retains its its space and its shape as what it is and what it meant to me then still is what it means to me now. What I like about this release, I didn't realise originally, and this was on the stream that I listened to. I don't know if it's on the record as well, but each track is named after the particular formation of glass the object that's used to generate it is that is that how it is on the release as well yes exactly cool so i listened first without knowing that and had an experience of just trying to inquire as to what on earth i was listening to at some points (laughs) trying to second guess whether it was even glass uh you know but Mm. then listening back and seeing you know a second time round that i was able to pair it up with what kind of thickness of glass, what kind of shape, what she may have been doing with it. Yeah. Um, and there's, I think there's, is there one called, I think, Glass Balls, where it sounds like a Florian Hecker piece or something, this <laughs> bouncy, like, very familiar sound um, associated with being a kid, I guess, of marbles making... Yeah, marbles wood. kind of hitting against each other. Oh, and, such yeah. A, yeah, I love it. Uh, uh, so you mentioned you get chills out of this release. Are there... This is probably an unfair question, but particular <laughs> moments that are quite dependable as generators of chills or, or, or any moments on this record that really stick out in your memory as like, wow. Oh, man. You know, I, I don't think I could say off the top of my head because, as I say, I've, I've been separated for it, from it for a couple of years now. Mm. So I've listened to bits and pieces online on occasion just in further through conversations with an A or research that I'm doing, but I haven't actually sat and listened to the whole album in at least a couple of years. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. There's definitely pieces that I, I enjoy more than others, but I can't, I couldn't tell you for sure which ones at this moment. Yeah. In a way, I'm sure it's frustrating to be separated from your records, but the idea of yearning for a release you don't have immediate access to is quite, interesting it's not exactly something that's commonplace i guess in current listening culture where you're separated from a uh, release and forced to i don't know have an acquaintance with it purely in imagination yeah well and you know that i could obviously like it like you could discover you could find this record online in a in a heartbeat you know but there i actually i really miss I mean, it's funny. I miss my records, but I'm I'm constantly sort of feel nostalgic for that feeling of longing for music uh-huh. and not having access to it. I think I, I chalk it up as a generational thing, <laughs> where because it isn't the case anymore. You know, like a, a kid can find out about an artist and then download their entire discography within an hour. You know, yeah. and and that wasn't the case for most of us you know growing up in previous generations where you literally would seek someone's workout for well possibly your whole life you know slowly right. finding things discovering spending time with it and 
I really value that. I still value that with Anea. I always think, you know, I've, she's been in my life, her music's been in my life for so many years, and it's just come in these little pieces and these little pieces that I could spend a lot of time with, and then I could find discover the next thing or come across the next thing and then and get to know that you know and i i really i really value that process yeah yeah it's um kind of quite i i don't know if this is the case but it feels like quite a modern thing to for someone to say where do i start with this artist rather than yeah you know with <laughs> what some can artists. i find <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah. it's like you know the world will tell you where to start because you'll stumble across the record and you know wherever Okay, Chris, let's go to your second important record now. So which one do you, do you want to go for now? Um, I'm going to go with the Walter Marchetti record, Anti-Barbarous. Cool. Uh, so yeah, why did this one make the list? So this, is, this record is, without fail, always in my top 10 um, <laughs> albums of all time. <laughs> and I even debated not not having it as, as one of my three choices. And then I listened to it again, and I was like, ah, oh, I have to have it. <laughs> um, it's a really, really important uh, record for me. And I would have heard it... So it, it was put out on CD by Alga Margan, a M- Milan-based label in 98. And I believe I heard it in the winter of 1999. So shortly after it came out. And... I was just mystified. I was just like, what is this? Who is this person? And it's quite mysterious. Like, there, there is, there's liners and there's details, but it's still... The cover art was just really mysterious and beautiful, and mm. which was a very big part of my interest in experimental music growing up, was that, that it was sort of anonymous. It wasn't about, like, oh, here's your rock star, and that's... Right who you're into it was more like what is the Hafler trio is it a trio is it a person who is Walter Marchetti who is it like is is this even really their name like you don't you don't really know uh-huh. and I really love that aspect because you could just listen to the sound and not be distracted by anything else um and this record oh I mean it's I love the atmosphere of this album it's incredibly abstract at times you don't know if it's purposefully generated sound if it's field recordings if it's you know if it's taking place in a giant foundry or whether it's just been recorded in his bathtub you know you mm. really there's there's so much ambiguity and richness of sound um and i just found it really intoxicating i was just absolutely obsessed with this cd i think i've listened to it hundreds of times um, and then later came to discover more of Marchetti's work, uh, and he's a fascinating composer and artist who, well, passed away a few years ago, mm. but really, like, you know, will do pieces for piano and, and more traditional instruments, but there's always sort of this fluxus absurdist aspect to his approach that 
I was happy to just continue to discover. Again, another artist that I continue to discover works of his uh, as years go by, and I sort of welcome each one into my life to become part of the family <laughs> as, they, <laughs> as they come. So really amazing artists, like super, super interesting. Yeah, I'm intrigued by him. So I don't know. Uh, this is the first thing I've heard by Walter Marchetti. Mm. Um I read a little bit about him, not loads. There was a yeah. quote in a, I think it was when he passed, The Wire wrote that he referred to his work as the asshole of Western music, <laughs> uh, which is which is nice. Uh, you know, as a Brit, always like to see the word asshole uh, crop up. Um, yeah. And anti-barbarous as well. The title wasn't familiar with that word, but seems to describe it's like a book or a description of how not to write in a particular language and you mentioned <laughs> he had this fluxus element to his work but the impression i'm getting in these early stages is someone who quite consciously repels perhaps codes that he perceives to exist within certain structures maybe around yeah. experimental music i mean what what do you know about him as a, a character and how that informs what he does yeah, I mean, I, I feel like uh, that's a very integral part. I mean, even just the idea of... I mean, I say fluxes, and I think he does have a kinship with, with that. He also had connections to people like Robert Ashley and John Cage. Yes. Um, yeah, you could definitely feel there's a bit of a subversive attitude of... A bit of a fuck you to... <laughs> I don't know if I'm... To, like, the, the sort of the structures that exist you know i mean he's taking a, pia a gorgeous grand piano and filling it with fruit you know in order to play it <laughs> and things like this which the the thing that that transcends just the shtick or the kind of the the initial sort of um you know uh i'm trying to think of a word for it it, it transcends that sort of punk attitude to just yes, be totally. to, to to have much more like sonically his work is incredibly beautiful it's really mm. nuanced it's really uh, like it, it, like i I've, i don't think i've heard anything that he's done that hasn't really impressed upon me so even though he's he's subverting these things and he's trying to be a bit of a you know a, he's trying to I've lost my ability to find language at the moment. Um, <laughs> there, there is this attitude to subvert, but it still comes down to making something beautiful and compelling and and having a, a real attention to sonics and music, you know, through, through that. So I think that's the difference and what I find a lot of other composers who sort of fall into that... Um, or who can be categorized along with Marchetti, like someone like Henning Christensen, or, or even work Joseph Boys did, or something. Where there, but there's still a musicality, and and a, a sense yeah. of the importance of sound that that transcends, or that that it, that coexists with those things. That's really important. Mm. You reference the fact that these important records have a pertinence to your practice or your relationship with sound as well so what mm. does that look like with Marchetti um yeah with with Marchetti it's actually really it's been interesting to go back and listen to these records for this with this interview in mind because I think is I think a lot of artists will find this that as years go by you might look at something that you loved and you suddenly go oh wow yeah 
that really has a relationship to what I've been doing or uh-huh. you know it's because I think at the time it's it's almost subconscious yeah you know I've n- and I think ironically it's not until more recently that I hear in my work some of the influence of listening to an album like Antibarbarous um, in that my work is more complex and more dense than it used to be and for me though I've always loved a sort of a lo-fi quality um, as much as I enjoy listening to other people's work that's very has beautiful high, high definition and, and is really you know clean my solo work often has sort of a murkiness to it mm. and, and a rawness which I, it just feels comfortable for me. And I, I like that sort of, the space that that inhabits and not being too pristine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely feel like, uh, particularly with Antibarbarous, it's very murky. It's got this very, very lo-fi, but very rich and very complex quality to it. And that uh, I definitely feel uh, a kinship with. This, to me, doesn't sound like a record released in 1998. I think (laughs) what you say about the fidelity of it lends probably a large portion to that. But I don't know when it sounds like it's from. It felt like on my first acquaintance, like a real inability to be comfortably wedged in any kind of time period. But if I was having a guess, Hmm. I'd probably be like, I don't know, 70s. It feels it's got that kind of um, raw sort of, sonic experimentation to it yeah really connected with i agree i feel that very much it's very hard to place it i mean in any way that's the thing it's hard to place what is he what is this music made from what is like what are the sources what is the space Mm. when does this exist and i feel like at the time that i got into this record i was also discovering things like david tudor's rainforest and these really similarly dense and complex um, sound worlds and the the wonderful thing is and the, I mean the Tudor stuff was generated would have been made much earlier there's sort of a I feel like there's some sort of a relationship in the way that they have this sort of wild ambiguity they feel very alive you know mm. they feel totally immersive and and almost yeah, like the, I feel like the wildness thing. It's like you feel like you've kind of stepped into like a, a jungle of sound. Yes. Like there's this is happening over there. This smell, this sound is coming at you, but it's not frightening or overwhelming per se. But it's really like it's hitting all your senses, and that. Mm. So the yeah, these works. I mean, that's something that was happening a lot in like the 60s and 70s was true it kind of wasn't happening later but Marchetti was already a well-established older composer by the time he made this record you know yes absolutely yeah the two I think the two most prominent sounds for me that stick in my head on listening through this once come in I think the latter stages of this record so there's one period where you've got I've written bubbles that sound like applause or vice versa. I don't know if you know what I mean, but... Um, I totally do. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then there's... I think it's almost immediately following that as these pulses that sound very much like birdsong, which go on for a very long time. Mm. Um, 
I don't know what they I mean I presume they're electronics but again you mentioned this ambiguity about them they almost seem to like go down this margin which explodes all kind of imaginary possibilities as what could be causing them which is really exciting as a listener exactly Um, I feel like that you've already been tortured enough by this process, but I will ask again, just in case. <laughs> are, are there any are, are there any sounds for you which really protrude as ones that are like, what is that, or you know, really set your mind alight? Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, actually, the bubbling sound that you mentioned as soon as you said it, I could hear it in my head. Uh huh because um, it's so good it's so yeah. yeah it's really really wonderful and and actually when I listened I kind of scanned through the record the other day and there was I was like oh there's actually this sounds like field recording where I hadn't thought of it as a field recording before like there's there's always sort of these things that you hear slightly differently mm-hmm. that shift and change I can't say that anything to me it's like it's one thing I can't even separate the pieces you know and but I but what's something you just said that that's actually really relevant to to something I love to do in my own work that very much ties to this record and to a lot of my favorite records um is that question of of source like this idea of is that a bird is that a synthesizer is that you know well well actually it's someone blowing bubbles underwater with a hydrophone or you mm-hmm. know like there's you i i feel like that moment where a sound becomes disconnected from its source or becomes or melds with a sound that takes it kind of alienates it from its origin mm-hmm. is really magical um I really love I really love playing with that, and I, a lot of the records that I get very excited about really kind of explore that that sort mm. of m- magical alien space between things. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think it just means that I can't close the loop mm-hmm. uh, that allows me to recognise an object and, I guess, in a certain sense, move on. There's this yeah. ellipsis that means that there's a tether running between me and the sound where we like, I've got to come back to that at some point and sort that out. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it activates, it activates your imagination because you can't, mm. yeah, it's not so clear. Like, you know, like, oh, well, that's a guitar. Okay. You know, yeah. now I'm going to just focus on the melody or the whatever, you know, it's, it's like you have to have a relationship with that sound and you have to interpret it through your own imagination, which is exciting Chris, let's go to your final important record. Uh, yes. Again, if you could give me the name of it and a bit about why it's important to you too. So uh, the last one is by Bernard Gunter, um, and it is called Universe Temporel Espoir. And this was on his label, Trente Oiseau. It came out also in 99, which clearly these were formative years for me. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. 
um, Günther being a oh gosh, I was I, he's German. I was going to say Austrian because I always have that. I often mess that up, but I'm quite sure uh-huh. uh, Bernard is is German. And uh, yeah, <laughs> this this is one I really wanted to include because. I feel like, particularly this period of work that Bernard Gunter was doing in the mid-90s and the early 2000s, was really, really important and really formative for a lot of people, or a lot of people that I'm friends with. (laughs) (laughs) And yet he doesn't really get spoken about. I feel Mm -hmm. like these records are really overlooked. And possibly because they were only released on CD and they haven't been reissued and although I think he has put some of them available on his band camp um, but Trotoiseau and Bernard Gunter's work in the period of the mid-90s early 2000s was really exciting, really fascinating stuff What was it about this record in particular that rose to the top as the one you wanted to pick for this list? Um well, you know, it was it was actually tricky because I wouldn't say that I have a favorite from this mm-hmm. period. Um, I have a particular fondness for a record he did with John Duncan called Home Unspeakable, which I think is the first record that CD that came out on Trente Oiseau. But when I went back and re-listened to some of these albums, I really got excited about this one in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, probably also because it's quite a long one and it kind of showcases a few aspects of what he was what he was doing at the time to mm. so people who don't know his stuff or or what Trottoiseau was all about it was really quiet music um, <laughs> yeah very like kind of like the I don't think at the time that they were using the term but this sort of idea of of microsound and and reductionism and all of these things but also with this ambiguity factor so you it was electronic music but was it you know there's sounds that you're hearing that could be as simple as him just like rolling a bottle over a table like very very slowly and picking up this sort of beautiful resonance through the table this is what I can envision I don't know actually what he was doing Uh um and then there'll be a pulse that's clearly electronically generated that sort of interacts with that, like these sort of juxtapositions of things. But there's this, it's a very, very slow, very quiet, really opens your ears up, really um, pulls you into like another world. And I think he was just doing really fascinating explorations at the time. I mean, a lot of other people on this record, John Hudak, um, uh, is a source is sourced for some of the sounds, as I mentioned. He worked with John Duncan, people like Steve Roden. Um, they all were working on the label and doing this sort of almost like putting things under a microscope. Right. That's sort of how I see it, like sonically bringing the focus really in, kind of like Anaya's work with the glass world. In a way, they're sort of bookends. To that to each other, and they have a relationship, but hers is a bit more pure, whereas Gunther's stuff is a bit more mysterious, you know. And can you recall how you first came into contact with this one? Yeah, at the time I was I was working at an HMV record store in Winnipeg, Canada, and um, it was uh, it would have been 
the late 90s and I, I like the story because <laughs> I was I was um suddenly in a position where I could start ordering in records for the store kind of unbeknownst to my manager um, one, of, one of the guys who did the ordering started slipping me catalogs me and another friend uh, that worked there and saying is there anything you guys think we should have and so we started ordering in all of this really wonderful experimental wow. and avant-garde records and we actually built I, I created an avant-garde section in the store and this no is like a way. mall That's in so downtown cool. like middle of canada no one wants an avant-garde <laughs> section <laughs> and um yeah we just we created actually an incredibly like really like it, it really covered the gamut it was really exciting and so that was like this way to start bringing these things that previously i would have just been mail ordering myself on a whim you know, through through little mail order catalogs, or occasionally going out of town and getting to buy something at a record store in the in the U.S. or something. Um, so this was my way of of just bringing it all in and getting a chance to listen to everything. And my, needless to say, my music collection grew exponentially <laughs> during that period. Wow, but what a dream! It, and this would have been '98 uh, to to when was it? I guess it was. I was working at that store from 96 to 99, I think. And it was actually a really exciting time for a lot of independent labels um, producing some really exciting work. And so I feel like that there's a lot of things that I came across at that time. And actually, this record that I that I chose of Gunter's wasn't out until I had moved to Montreal uh, the following year, in which case I would have heard it there. But I, I discovered Trantoiseau when it first came out and when they first started releasing stuff um, through being able to order it into a record store and being the only person who would buy it in Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of others, but it was primarily <laughs> myself yeah. and maybe two friends. <laughs> That's so great. Um, we had a HMV in my old hometown, and I think if you are wired to seek out experimental music you you know when there is someone working there who has oh, yeah. got their hands on the catalog because you're like there's no way this should uh you know this has no appeal to people strolling through a mall you know opposite exactly. top shop and stuff it's great you just reminded me of that's another thing i kind of miss is that knowing i had like regular guys that would come in on particular days just to say okay what did you bring in this week you know what <sighs> what do i need and then also I had friends working in other branches where I'd do the same. I'd go, okay, what did you get in this week? You know, like, oh, <laughs> so we could so kind of cool. have a little network. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 1999, you say, you discover this one. And you mentioned it's kind of a formative time. And in this mm. conversation, I guess I've picked up on a, a few factors that could play into that. So the fact you were working in record stores and able to rake in all this wonderful music. Um what is it about this particular time you think that made it so prime for discovering records that you now consider important? Well, it's funny because I, I often question these things because, I mean, at the time I would have been in my early 20s mm. and that obviously is like for a lot of us, like my teens to my early 20s, or for most of us, that period is really one where we sort of notch out the things we 
get into what we're excited about, the music we love, you mm-hmm. know, the art we explore, all of these things. Um, and I, 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 this is one of the problems I had when trying to select records is I kept saying, well, but why am I going back to that period? Like, there's so much music, so <laughs> many records that I love that I just, you know, that I just heard last year. I just heard two months ago, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's like, you can't deny that these things that you hear at that time um, really affect the way that you listen or affect the things that you go to from that point, you know? Mm. So for sure, the, the period of time, given my age and my excitement and access to things, is, is a core part of why I think you know, these records become so important. But I do have a feeling, and I've had this conversation with a few friends about... The like the '90s um, for hmm. particular types of experimental music, and I I have a tendency, and I don't look that fondly on the '90s, generally, <laughs> but I do feel like for independent experimental labels, there it was a really interesting and active period, hmm. and there was a lot of people kind of going in very different directions, you know, like there's fantastic noise music coming out of that period there was incredible improv coming out of that period then there's sort of all these strange labels that were teetering the line between acoustic and electronic electroacoustic stuff and and these strange ambiguous things that um to me really sort of that period is when a lot of them really kind of blew up a lot of the a lot of the artists that i really dug whether it was Organum or Trio or Bernard Gunter, this was like, it was just a really rich period for mm. activity in that, that field of, of sound exploration. Yeah, that's so interesting. The 90s comes up for me. I did a book on post-rock music where the original right. definition of that term was associated with these bands that were coalescing a lot of different things. But mm-hmm. in that, early mid period of the 90s there was something very interstitial about what was going on that towards the end of that decade then started to become I guess codified as particular things but there was that strange moment of time and maybe this is running in parallel to the uh, sort of further reaches of experimental music that you're referring mm. to where opportunity and possibility seem to be the driving forces rather than a reference to something specific, you know. Right. I, I don't know what the factors would have been that meant that that was so fertile at that period of time, but it's so interesting to hear you mention that as well. Yeah, I mean, it is really interesting to think about because, I mean, one of the people that I've talked about this stuff with is Jim O'Rourke, who huh. obviously was extremely active not just as a musician but also in bringing work other people's artists or other artists work out into the world and stuff in the 90s Mm -hmm. like it was a very very um sort of exhilarating decade for him as well and it's i mean sometimes i'm like but is it just because we were in it that it feels this way or was it because like or was there actually some other stuff going on there because it's true it felt like a very interesting moment to where every sort of field of mm-hmm. music was sort of exploding in a way like the you know whether you were into 
the rock and the post-rock stuff or you were into electronic music or you were into avant-garde and experimental stuff, they all kind of were really, really just pulsing. Like there was there was yes. all this interesting stuff going on. Which is funny because I, I think about it, I'm always so blasé about that decade, but actually within there was actually a lot of really fantastic stuff happening totally so with Gunter I mean you sent me an email saying wear headphones for this one which Mm. became very apparent why that was the recommendation almost immediately he has this thing which I think sounds like maybe quite a mundane point but seems very aware of the physicality of the ear on, of the yes. listener when he's making yeah. sounds. Um, and the fact that there is this illusory sensation of things within your ear canal. Is that yes. an aspect of his work that connects with you as well? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I don't know his philosophies around that or what mm. he, what he's, if he's really actively you know, purposefully trying to engage with that, um, the way that some other composers are really working with, like, psychoacoustics and, and right. inner ear. Um, but when I when I came back to listening to this record, I was just blissed out because of that, the way that these delicate little sounds were playing deep in your ear. And then mm. there'd be these the stereo movement and things that you really... That, that aspect of physicality and immersion but in this very very discreet very elegant way mm. that definitely I, I relate to very much in what I'm what I'm trying to do with a lot of my pieces is playing with that I mean and it's all about sort of this idea of making the listener like activating the listener making the listener more a part of your work you know, yeah. rather than just being here, I made this thing. There you go. Just listen to it. You know, it's like, no, I want you to become a part of it. I want it to be yours as well. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, and I definitely feel like that was something that Bernard Gunter was, was thinking about. There's no way he couldn't have been because the music became, it, it has such an intimacy to it. Have you seen him live? I think I saw something about an involvement that he had at Send and Receive at some point, is that correct? He did, um, he, it was actually the uh, before I became the director of the festival, ah. so at the time I was living in Montreal, but, um, and I, I've, I did include the, the version, like a recording of the piece that he did with a, with a Winnipeg-based artist uh, named Chris Bryan. They had done kind of a long-distance collaboration for the festival, so he wasn't actually present, but he was streaming and they were playing together live and that piece is on a box set that we did for the for the 10th anniversary of the festival Mm. so i've heard it but i didn't yeah i didn't i've never witnessed him live and in fact i don't know that he really was performing live during this period i mean Mm. it may have happened i know that in more recent years he's moved on to focusing on actually playing like traditional instruments like from different cultural backgrounds like he started collecting um african instruments and indonesian instruments and stuff and so he's really he's moved into other territory and i think he does has performed with that stuff but i don't know how much performing he did during this period Hmm. yeah i wonder if that's like a 
something tied into his philosophy? I mean, he talks a lot about um, shedding like our cultural knowledge of mm. sounds and just having the sounds exist as themselves. I guess that's so much easier if he's not present showing you how it's done. Yeah, it's true. Hmm. Um, one more question I have for you, Chris, is if you really want to listen to a record and dig into it incredibly deeply is there a listening setup you have or an environment or a specific place or way that you like to listen to records intensely hmm. well now you're making me sad because i haven't had <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no no it's fine <laughs> but but yeah i haven't had that in a while but um it, it's it's usually in my home space and it depends on the record whether it's something I'm putting on and sitting and listening to on my couch or whether I'm sitting with headphones on intently listening. Um, really dictated by the music. I mean, obviously, when I when I suggested to you that you listen to Gunther's um, music on, on headphones, it's because a lot is lost if you're just listening to it in the open air. Mm. Um, with... With a lot of the records that relate to this one, they they all could almost be inaudible if you're not really closely listening. Mm-hmm. So that demands a different kind of focused listening. Whereas, but just sitting in a room, I mean, my partner and I are both um, obsessive, avid listeners, and we always have points in a day where we just put a record on and sit and listen just sit and you know sometimes we'll have to close all the windows or you know things just just so that we can we can get a little bit more you know let the music have more space of its own without too much interruption Mm. but yeah i mean that process that that sitting and listening something we also do with some friends particularly in melbourne our good friend francis plan who i collaborate with we'll often just get together and we'll just all sit and have a glass of wine and just listen to records and not even talk too much, you know, just because we just want to experience that process together. And uh, that's probably one of my favorite things to do. Great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk through these records and your own music as well. This has been great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been actually very fun. (laughs) (laughs) I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Me too. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.